This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. This week on Face the Nation, we are in an intensely divisive time in America with new questions about possible criminal misconduct by former President Trump and concerns about his handling of some of our nation's most sensitive national security secrets as we struggle to deal with these unprecedented challenges to our democracy. Then, on the eve of the one-year anniversary of the U.S. pullout and the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, we'll have an exclusive look at a new report about what went wrong, as a new U.S. intelligence assessment says al-Qaeda is no longer a threat there. All that, plus a look at the country's teacher shortage and its potential impact on our children. It's just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It has been six days since the FBI executed a search warrant and seized at least two dozen boxes of material from former President Trump's Florida home and resort Mar-a-Lago. The dramatic developments each day since have left us with more questions than answers. Here is what we know. The Department of Justice is investigating Mr. Trump for potential criminal action. A federal court authorized a search warrant after finding probable cause of impeding the investigation, as well as the removal of classified national security records and violation of parts of the Espionage Act. According to the Presidential Records Act, the removal of materials is illegal, whether they're classified or not. The FBI seized 11 sets of classified documents, some marked top secret and above, including highly sensitive intercepts, plus material related to the president of France and Trump confidant Roger Stone's clemency. While in office, presidents can declassify most anything, but White House lawyers establish a paper trail. It is unclear if one exists for these items. The search was conducted with two of Mr. Trump's lawyers on site, but was not public knowledge until the former president announced it on his social media platform, Truth Social, Monday night. It was the first of many postings with the familiar charges of hoaxes, witch hunts and other false claims. The outrage from his supporters was fast and furious. I don't want to know what, you know, what led to this. I think every Republican believes that the FBI, when it comes to Trump, and other organizations have lost their mind. This should scare the living daylights out of American citizens. The way our federal government has gone, it's, it's like what we thought about the Gestapo and people like that. Threats against law enforcement spiked dramatically online, using extreme rhetoric not seen since the days leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Any threats made against law enforcement, including the men and women of the FBI, uh, as with any law enforcement agency, are, are deplorable. And dangerous. Thursday, Ricky Schiffer, a Navy veteran who said he was at the Capitol on January 6th, was shot and killed by police following his armed attempt to breach an FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio. While the standoff with Schiffer was still ongoing, Attorney General Merrick Garland offered a rare public statement defending the search. I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. The department does not take such a decision lightly. A court then agreed to Garland's request to unseal the warrant. Trump's lawyers did not object. That warrant gave us some insight Friday into what was seized. The DOJ investigation began months ago following the National Archives discovery that some of Mr. Trump's presidential records had not been turned over as dictated by law. The former president acknowledged he'd taken material to Mar-a-Lago after he left office and returned 15 boxes in January. 
Soon after that, officials disclosed that classified national security information was among those materials. This spring, a federal judge issued a subpoena in search of further records that investigators believed he failed to turn over. On June 3rd, federal agents returned to Mar-a-Lago to discuss additional material that was missing. CBS News has learned that a Trump attorney certified in writing after that meeting that all classified materials had been removed from Mar-a-Lago. DOJ suspected that was not the case, which triggered the FBI's retrieval last Monday. And there is still a lot we do not know. News organizations, including CBS, have filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the release of the underlying affidavit that would outline evidence and give us insight into why DOJ officials believe a crime possibly has been committed. We begin today with Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa, Chief National Affairs and Justice Correspondent Jeff Begays, and Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarlane. You've all been busy, Jeff. I want to start with you in the news overnight that Homeland Security has issued this rather frightening bulletin, frankly, uh, using language talking about threats to law enforcement around the country. Nicole Skanga obtained it. And according to the bulletin, it says the threats are specific, including a threat to place a so-called dirty bomb in front of FBI headquarters. And there are calls for civil war. What are your sources telling you about the risk? Yeah, this is, as you noted, one of the most chilling bulletins I've read, and I've read numerous bulletins dating back to the the days of al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so this is the domestic threat here. And according to the bulletin, which I was just looking at again, part of the concern are some of these drivers, public officials making statements in support of this search at Mar-a-Lago or against criticizing the search, criticizing the FBI. And so you have FBI officials right now concerned about the safety of their agents, employees in general. And then, as you noted, that dirty bomb reference. So there is a lot of concern around the country, and this is the kind of bulletin that will go out to all police agencies so that they are intent on sharing information because, frankly, you don't really know where the threat is really going to come from. And and it mentions continued concern going into the midterm races as well. Uh, Robert, I want to go to you now. You know, we were talking about this investigation and putting it in the scope of all the different probes. And and we tallied them up here. Um, For the former president, there are at least three investigations at the federal level that we know about. Uh, One state probe in New York into the Trump Organization. A grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, is looking at his attempts to overturn 2020. We're not even talking about what's happening in Capitol Hill. These These are investigations underway right now. This, however trigger the most significant law enforcement response to date. What are your sources telling you about what the FBI has actually found? It's such a good reminder, Margaret, that among all these investigations that are ongoing, this one, going back to the spring, has been very serious. And the attorney general's statement underscored that it began with a subpoena in the spring and then the search, the meeting in June, then that led to the ultimate search in August at the president's residence. They are looking into the boxes that he had personal materials as well as classified materials, allegedly, that were then included as part of the the trove of materials and documents that went to Mar-a-Lago. They are highly alarmed behind the scenes about the possibility that, as you have reported, intercepts, sensitive information about national security, defense projects were part of what the former president brought back to Florida without checking with other people. Some associates of the former president say, hey, he is someone who sometimes wasn't organized. But for the Justice Department, that's not going to be an excuse. That's part of their investigation. What does he have? Is it a threat to the national security? And they want him to give it back, but it's already a legal battle. And why wait 18 months to act? What triggered this tremendous response this week? We have so many questions. I want to get to Scott and come back to you on the politics of this because... We're already there. Um, But, Scott, on the threat levels, I know you have been watching the level of concern out there preceding the events of this week. Um, You know, when we look at the president, the former president's statements, he uses words like siege, attack, uh, that the FBI is really targeting him. He has not called for calm. He is continuing to use this rhetoric. What impact is there? Immediately, we see this quick acceleration of ferocious chatter on social media platforms, on chat groups from potential extremists targeting the judge who signed the search warrant. They're trying to deduce who the FBI agents were 
who were part of that surge. But that's just an inflammation of an already dangerous situation stemming from January 6th. The prosecution of the Capitol riots has created its own radicalization. The D.C. federal judges handling the January 6th cases are getting vile, vulgar death threats. The people who are part of the investigation are getting threats. The prosecution itself is radicalizing people. Now we have a force multiplier a search of Mar-a-Lago. And what's so interesting here is we're not just talking about rhetoric online. For Homeland Security to have gone out, taken what you laid out, and then issued a bulletin saying this is a real specific threat, that shows that this is increasing. This isn't just people talking out of school online. Well, exactly. I mean, look what happened in Ohio on Thursday with this Ricky Schiffer who was, you know, who took action, tried to attack this FBI Cincinnati office, uh, but was shot and killed. But it is the kind of threat that officials are concerned about. These are lone actors who are motivated by some of the drivers, which is these public statements from public leadership that they support, they endorse. And what you are hearing are these calls for armed rebellion. And our there are people out there who obviously have access to the weapons to really cause some damage. Which is deeply concerning. Um, Robert Costa, you have been reporting that the 45th president would like to run again and is making some plans to run for president in 2024. How does this impact that? This is factoring into his decision in some way. I'm told by people close to him this weekend that he's still moving toward an announcement despite all of the legal challenges he is facing potentially so this isn't damaging. Well, we're not saying it's not damaging. You see, this could be extremely damaging. We have so little visibility into what he put in these boxes. Was it a, a grave national security threat? It could be politically explosive down the line. But we don't want to get ahead of that in terms of the political impact. But in no way does it seem to be deterring him from moving toward one. What we are seeing behind the scenes also is he's arguing that he has some kind of declassification. I spoke with National Security Advisor, the former one, John Bolton, who worked for Trump. Mm -hmm. And he said any argument that this was somehow declassified won't hold up because he said the president had the responsibility to take care of the records he was given from intelligence briefers. Even if he brought them back to the residence, he had a responsibility to make sure they were filed properly. And that even if he didn't have the intent yeah. of committing a crime, that it was the wrong thing to do. And there'd be a paper trail. This is an ongoing story. I know all of you are busy. Thank you. We want to go now to California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. He's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and his book, Midnight in Washington, is now out in paperback. Good morning to you, Chairman Schiff. Good morning. You were typically told about covert operations, ongoing national security threats. Do you have any sense at this time whether the information that Donald Trump had in his Florida residence posed any kind of threat to national security? Well, all I know about the actual materials uh, is what was in that search warrant inventory. Uh, but from that alone, you can tell there was a serious risk uh, to disclosure potentially of sources and methods because some of those documents were marked top secret, sensitive compartmented information. Uh, that is among the highest designation in terms of the, the extremely grave damage to national security that could be done if it were disclosed. Uh, so the fact that they were in an unsecure place uh, that is guarded with nothing more than a padlock uh, or whatever security they had at a hotel uh, is deeply alarming. Uh, and I have asked for, along with Chairman Maloney, a damage assessment by the intelligence community and a briefing to Congress. Will you get one? Have you heard from the Director of National Intelligence? Uh, I have not heard back yet, uh, but I'm confident we will get one, and I'm confident the intelligence community will do a damage assessment that is, I think, fairly routine when there has been uh, the potential risk of disclosure of uh, national security information or classified information. Uh, and what is, to me, uh, most disturbing here is the, the degree to which, at least from the public reporting, mm -hmm. uh, it attempted, you know, it appears to be willful on the president's part. Uh, the the, the keeping of these documents after the government was requesting them back, uh, and that is, adds another layer uh, of concern. So if there were truly materials of this classification level, and it's been publicly reported elsewhere that there were uh, materials related to nuclear 
programs, for example, if there was that sensitive level of information being held, why did Justice Department officials wait 18 months after the end of the Trump presidency? What changed that made this immediate? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it, uh, if uh, the Trump people represented that they provided all the classified or national security information and didn't, uh, that's a serious problem. And I can tell you, anyone in the intelligence community that had uh, documents like that marked top secret SCI uh, in their residence after authorities went to them, um, you know, they would be under serious investigation. Uh, you know, the president um, has broad declassification authority when he is in office, but typically a declassification is memorialized in some way. Um, can you seek out the answer to the question of whether there actually is record of whether Donald Trump declassified that? That's his defense here, that anything he had, he had already declassified. Uh, yes, uh, we should determine, uh, you know, whether there was any effort uh, during the presidency to go through the process of declassification. I've seen no evidence of that, nor have they presented any evidence of that. Uh, the idea, first of all, a former president has no declassification authority. Right. And the idea that 18 months after the fact, Donald could Trump, Trump could simply announce, well, I'm, you know, uh, retroactively declassifying or whatever I took home had the effect of declassifying them uh, is absurd. Uh, but nonetheless, the statutes the Justice Department are uh, asserting in the search warrant uh, don't even require that they still be classified. If they would be damaging to national security, it's a problem. It's a major problem. Uh, and, you know, finally, I'd like to add the, the reaction of many of my Republican colleagues uh, and, and those around the former president to attack the FBI over this uh, and endanger FBI agents uh, mm -hmm. is just another uh, uh, damaging level of irresponsibility. Also, we learned this past week that your colleague, uh, Congressman uh, Scott Perry, who leads the Freedom Caucus, um, the Justice Department seized his cell phone as part of their investigation into the attempts to overturn the election results in 2020 and that slate of fake electors. The committee looked in to his actions and the slate of fake electors. We heard during the public testimony about that and some conspiracy theories that he had been talking to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, about. Are those two parts of those investigations overlapping here? Well, you know, to the degree that the Justice Department appears to be investigating the fake elector plot, uh, then yes, our investigations would very much be overlapping. Uh, what is to me most striking uh, about the seizure of that phone uh, is in order to do that, of course, they would have to make a showing uh, to a judge uh, or a grand jury about uh, the, there being probable cause that uh, there was evidence of a crime um, on that phone. And the fact that it was a member of Congress's phone, I think, would make the Justice Department all the more certain or need to be certain that they uh, had the probable cause. Um, and that, that also suggests the department thinks that this fake elector plot was a violation of law, which I think it certainly was. Uh, so uh, I think it's very significant in all those respects. Yeah, uh, and just that is its own uh, federal investigation there. Uh, on another topic, I want to ask you, um, we are coming up on this one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover uh, of that country. Um, you said at the time of the withdrawal that, that you would have liked the military to stay on as long as necessary to get Americans out and fulfill our obligation to our allies. You had pledged vigorous oversight. We haven't seen the White House or State Department act after action reports on this. The country is just in utter devastation under Taliban rule. Did it really have to be this bad? Well, I certainly don't think the withdrawal had to uh, 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 go as it did, uh, and the loss of American lives during that withdrawal, uh, and the degree to which it, it took months and months, and we continued to try to uh, help people uh, escape from Afghanistan, uh, I think could have been handled differently. Um, but I do think that we, we have demonstrated, the administration has demonstrated uh, with the uh, killing of Zawahiri, the number two in Al-Qaeda uh, under bin Laden, uh, that it retains the capability, much as it said it would a year later, to go after Mm -hmm. um, uh, those that threaten the country wherever they may be, in this case, the heart of Kabul. Uh, I think, you know, the killing of Zawahiri shows both the, the danger uh, and also our capability. The danger in that, I think, clearly high 
elements of the Taliban government had to know that he was there and were giving him safe harbor. But is Al-Qaeda an ongoing we have demonstrated threat? We can and will go after anyone. Uh, Al-Qaeda is an ongoing threat. I think, though, that the threat from Al-Qaeda is probably greater outside Afghanistan than it is in Afghanistan. Chairman Schiff, thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We go now to Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. He's a former FBI agent and federal prosecutor and joins us from Philadelphia. Congressman, good morning to you. I wonder, as a former agent, you've seen the warrant now, as we all have. Um, What does it indicate to you about a potential crime that was committed? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Well, I think it can be summed up in one line. Uh, Margaret, it was an unprecedented action that needs to be supported by unprecedented justification. Uh, Part A, was it unprecedented action? Yes, we know that. This has never happened before in our country's history. To the second question, was there unprecedented justification? That remains an open question, and we know exactly where to look, and that is the affidavit of probable cause, the one document that remains under seal. Um, So because we don't have that information, I've encouraged all my colleagues on the left and the right Uh, to reserve judgment and not get ahead of yourself because we don't know what that document contains. It's going to answer a lot of questions. Uh, When we had the press conference uh, on Friday with my uh, fellow Intelligence Committee members, I telegraphed to the press then, I said, the documents that you will see unsealed today, uh, which was the, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the warrant, the rider to the warrant, and the property receipt, are not going to shed a whole lot of light beyond the statutes that were being investigated. But you voted for a bill in 2018 that made it a felony to possess documents or materials containing classified information. President Trump signed that same bill into law. Did he break it? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we got to find out. I mean, nobody is claiming. Well, the receipt uh, says that he had classified and top secret and above information in boxes at Mar-a-Lago. Right. Yeah. Nobody's claiming that it's okay to have, uh, certainly I'm not, that it's okay to have classified information anywhere outside of a SCIF. Uh, I know that better than anybody, given my former profession and my current committee assignment. But the problem is that the administration is disputing a lot of what's being publicly reported. So the affidavit will answer that question. Mm-hmm. It will be able to tell us who is providing misinformation. Is it the, uh, the, the, prior administration or the current administration. We need, to, we need to get that clarified. Well, as you know, news organizations are trying to get a hold of that affidavit, but those aren't normally released during an active investigation. Is it appropriate to release it now in the midst of an investigation? Well, that's, I would say this, Margaret, at the very least, if they don't want to just, uh, unseal it for public uh, consumption, they can certainly bring it into the SCIF. Uh, to bring it to our our House Intelligence Committee members. We, after all, do have oversight over the entire intelligence apparatus. So that's what's puzzling to us, Um, uh, Margaret. Myself, uh, Mike Turner, fabulous member of Congress from Mm -hmm. Ohio who's taking a very measured approach as well. Um, We understand the dynamics of play here. Uh, We just want to get to the truth. That's it. Uh, Objective truth. Uh, We're not taking any angle uh, from any side here. Uh, And I want to get to some of that 
truth and fact as we know it um, more on the other side of a break. And I also want to talk to you about the threats against law enforcement that we are seeing. So please stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with former FBI agent, now Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. Congressman um, Breitbart, a conservative website, published the names of the FBI agents who went to Mar-a-Lago and are related to that. And there are now a spike in online threats against them. Um, I want to play for you how some Republican Party (coughs) leaders have described events this week. The FBI raid of President Trump is a complete abuse and overreach of its authority. We're very strong supporters of law enforcement, and it concerns everybody if you see some agents go rogue. And if you see an agency that doesn't have the right checks and balances at the top. Is that responsible to refer to these law enforcement officials as going rogue? Yeah, I think, Margaret, uh, and I've urged all my colleagues um, to, to make sure they understand the weight of their words uh, and uh, understanding what we don't know yet. Uh, and that's why that probable cause affidavit uh, is so important. And the unfortunate reality, Margaret, I mean, in my sh- uh, few short years in Congress, I've seen uh, uh, undermining of all three branches of government uh, lead to threats of violence and acts of violence, starting with the, uh, the attack on my uh, fellow baseball team members on, on the baseball field to threats to Supreme Court justices to threats to law enforcement, both local and during the, yeah. uh, the unrest in the summer of 2020, and now to federal law enforcement. All of it's unacceptable. Right. And now there's a bulletin warning law enforcement of the level of threat right now. That's why I want to ask you, overnight, um, a series of statements from the 45th president saying the FBI has a long and unrelenting history of being corrupt. He said the FBI is a criminal RICO enterprise whose cover sources and methods include criminal acts. His campaign is fundraising off of this and has uh, referred to an army of agents from the FBI breaking into his home and said that he hopes they're not planting evidence Is he putting a target on the back of these FBI agents? I I checked in with several of my colleagues um, in the past few days, Margaret, uh, to make sure they were okay. Um, Every single elected official, every single leader needs to mind the weight of their words. Uh, This kind of uh, Including the former president of the United States who has not called for calm. Correct. Uh, I think everybody needs to be calling for calm. Everybody across the board. And everybody needs to respect our law enforcement, whether they be local, uh, state, or federal. Um, I'm very concerned, uh, Margaret, for the safety of our law enforcement officers, uh, especially right now. Uh, I myself have been notified by the Bureau that uh, my life was put in danger uh, recently um, by some of these same people. And it's, violence is never the answer to anything. Uh, we live in a democracy that's 246 years old. Margaret, uh, that's not long. That's just a few generations. And yet we're the world's oldest democracy. And the only way that can come unraveled is if we have disrespect for our institutions that lead to Americans turning on American uh, and, and the, uh, the whole system becomes unraveled. And a lot of that starts with the words we're using. Mm-hmm. So I urge all my colleagues, and we've seen disrespect across the, uh, across the political spectrum, um, uh, Margaret, which I mentioned with local law enforcement, yeah. with the Supreme Court, and now federal law enforcement, none of it is okay. None of it. If you take the name Donald Trump off of this warrant, are you okay with this raid? It shouldn't matter. No one is above the law. Uh, I, that's a principle that all of us should agree to. Um, but all I'm saying here, uh, Margaret, is an unprecedented action because this will have an impact yeah. uh, on other things. For example, for example, uh, a lot of us are trying very hardly to get FISA and Section 702 reauthorized. Um, this is, you know, potentially if this were, were a warrant that was excessive, and we don't know whether it was or not, because, Margaret, there's a continuum of ways to gather evidence, everything from the passive service of a subpoena uh, with a future production date to the dynamic execution of a search warrant, which we saw here, there's a lot of things you can do in between, including a forthwith subpoena where you present that subpoena at the door, you don't enter the premises, but you demand instant production then and there. We don't know what was appropriate, what was justified or not, and that's why this affidavit is so important. That will answer all the questions. So I'm urging all my colleagues, don't prejudge what we don't know about yet. And I'm also urging all my colleagues to understand the weight of your words and support law enforcement no matter what. Thank you very much, Congressman Fitzpatrick. 
And on Saturday, the Biden administration released an updated assessment on al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, citing intelligence community reports that the terror group is no longer assessed to be a threat in that country. Tomorrow marks one year since the chaotic collapse of the Afghan government as U.S. troops prepared to leave. And while the administration's full report on the much-criticized withdrawal is still a work in progress, the top Republican of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall's report, is complete. He's here with us. Good morning to you, Congressman. Uh, thanks, Margaret. Thanks for having me. Um, this deserves a full conversation, and I want to get to it. Let me do this bit of business, though, first on the events of the past uh, few days. Um, Senator Marco Rubio, who's the vice chair of Senate Intelligence, issued a, layer, a letter saying he was outraged not to have been briefed. And he blasted the FBI, saying that they have done more damage to faith in the rule of law than the Russian Federation or any other foreign adversary. Is his anger misplaced? You know, I think it comes on the hill. I think the Wall Street Journal did a great article about how, you know, after the Russian collusion, Steele dossier, everything that took place during the Trump presidency and now out of office to have this raid take place. Look, I, I'm a, a DOJ alumni. I worked at Public Integrity here at Maine Justice. And um, uh, what I worry about, Margaret, is, is the lack of trust uh, in our and faith in our institutions. That concerns me most uh, above all. And I think when you saw the DHS bulletin uh, about, you know, potential threats now to the agents, uh, this is the whole fabric of our democracy. Uh, and they have lost faith. Many have uh, in uh, the FBI and our institutions. I hate to see that uh, as a former federal prosecutor. Understood. And there is something like a healthy skepticism about law enforcement, certainly. But for the former president to be using the language that he is when there is this level of threat against FBI agents, uh, would you call on him to tone it down? I, I think it's inflammatory. I don't want to put any law enforcement uh, in the bullseye of a potential threat. Um, and uh, that's I'm someone who's worked with law enforcement most of my career. Uh, this is an extraordinary case. And what lawyers, we call a case of first impression. We've never had a, a former president of the United States serve the search warrant. Uh, there was a subpoena. The court could have enforced the subpoena. That should have been a last uh, uh, stage process. And I would also, I agree with Brian Fitzpatrick, right? Mm -hmm. The affidavit in support of the warrant will give you the probable cause to try to understand what is going on here. And I think the American people deserve this. And I certainly think, to Rubio's point, that the gang of eight should have been briefed. And I believe that the relevant committees on the Hill should have access to the documents, but more, most importantly, this affidavit. Yeah. Well, uh, we will see. Um, it sounds like it may take some time to get some of these answers. I want to talk to you about Afghanistan. Um, I've read your report. The State Department says there are about 74,000 vulnerable Afghans still stuck waiting for these visas to exit the country um, who worked with the United States government. Your report says the State Department knew going back well into the Trump administration that it needed more staff, that it needed more resources to even begin to help get these people out. And that's before the chaos of the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the prime sort of sins here that you see in terms of failure to plan? There, there are many uh, sins, if you will. Uh, there was a complete lack and a failure to plan. There was no plan and it was there was no plan executed. And to, uh, you know, to your point, um, you know, even beforehand, I think the State Department probably didn't have the resources it needed to carry out an evacuation of this size in Normandy. They had 36 consular officers at HKIA trying to process hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, they were overwhelmed, but there are so many mistakes. The biggest one, Margaret, for me, having lived through it, were, you know, being in the classified space, listening to the uh, intelligence community tell the story about this is going to be imminent. It's going to fall sooner rather than later. The military said it, told us the same thing. And then we went to state and they paint in the White House a very rosy picture. There's a disconnect between, you know, intelligence on the ground and what the White House is doing. I think in this report, this says it all like there's no way we're going to evacuate embassy personnel from helicopters like we did in Vietnam. Yeah. And of course, we know that happened. Well, the criticism of this report will be that this was the minority report, that it's inherently political. 
And that when Republicans take the majority, if they win the majority in November, that this is going to be just a political line of attack. How do you respond to that? You know, I, I, you know, I was a federal prosecutor longer than a member of Congress, so it's been almost 20 years now. And I, I pride myself as being objective. I think this is a fairly objective report about the failures that were made. You know, one of the biggest ones was that, that the Taliban sitting with his all colleagues out of the special envoy and General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, made an offer. You can take control over Kabul and secure it for purposes of the evacuation. And General McKenzie said, that's not my assignment here. Not my assignment. That's not what the commander in chief told me. They do run it up to the White House. And they get no response. And then later, Jen Psaki says they wouldn't have approved that. Think about what that would have changed. We had to rely on the Taliban to secure the perimeter of HKIA. That led to the chaos. It also led to the suicide bomber that killed 13 service member, uh, men and women, and injured over hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could have been avoided. You know, uh, the current U.S. Special Envoy for Afghan Women and Girls was out of government when this was going on. She's quoted in your report as saying she still struggles to understand how this supposedly pre-planned, negotiated, inevitable withdrawal ended the way it did. It feels so much like living Schindler's List. That's a pretty powerful criticism. Um, Who specifically needs to be held accountable, if anyone here? And is it simply just the matter of this was an intelligence failure uh, that the government would fall as quickly as it did, that the former president would have fled? Um, How do you respond to that, that there was an inability to plan for this because it was not predicted? Well, the intelligence community got it right. So there's no failure on the intelligence side, nor uh, the Pentagon. They called it right. The problem was the White House and and State Department putting their head in the sand, not wanting to believe what they were saying, and therefore not adequately p- planning. And I think to your point, the women left mm-hmm. behind is, is the worst of this entire story. I tried. Yes. I got four busloads of little girls from a music school out, but the Schindler, Schindler's List, you know, if you're on the list, you're going to live. If you're not on the list, you're probably going to die. 100,000 mm-hmm. Afghan partners left behind. Remember we said, we will protect you. That was our promise yeah. to them. No one left behind, and we left them behind to the mercy of the Taliban, and now they're being tortured and killed. Well, uh, the State Department says that it has tried to comply with your committee. We await their full report of their own actions. Uh, thank you for sharing your findings they have not, today. They have, not, they, have not, they have not complied with our investigation at all. Congressman, thank you for your time today. We turn thank to Imtiaz Tayyip, who reports from Kabul about how life for the people of Afghanistan has taken a turn for the worse under the Taliban. One year after the Taliban's lightning-fast takeover of Afghanistan and the group's grip on power is tighter now more than ever. Across Kabul, you can see the Taliban's flag flying nearly everywhere, making it clear the U.S.-backed Republic of Afghanistan is gone and the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is holding strong. But the nation's economy is in ruins. Following the Taliban takeover, the U.S. froze billions in assets and foreign donors pulled funding that made up nearly three-quarters of Afghanistan's annual budget. Triggering what the U.N. calls the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, where around 90% of people don't have enough food to eat. And yet, the Emirate seems more focused on controlling the lives of its citizens, especially women, who have seen so much of the progress they've made over the past 20 years disappear and have been told to cover up. High school-age girls have also largely been shut out of classrooms for the past year, but a growing number are defying the Taliban by going to unofficial schools like this one, including Nafisa, whose own brother is a Taliban. My brother doesn't know that I come to this school, she says. It's only my mother who supports me. For world leaders, how to engage with the Taliban government continues to be a challenge. Many of the men now running Afghanistan remain on international terrorist lists, some with multi-million dollar bounties on their head, like acting Interior Minister Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is linked to this house in Kabul, where the U.S. says Ayman al-Zawahri, the al-Qaeda leader and 9-11 plotter, was killed earlier this month in a drone strike. Abdul Kahar Balki is the Taliban spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So far, we haven't reached a conclusion that indeed uh, Mr. Zawahiri was present in Kabul. To be clear, 
you're not confirming that Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in that house, not far from where we're sitting now. Absolutely. We have not uh, arrived at that conclusion. Abdul Kahar Balki, however, did agree that if the leader of a terrorist organization like al-Qaeda was found living in Afghanistan, the Taliban would consider it a violation of the nation's sovereignty. Margaret. MTS Tayyip reporting from Kabul. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are also nearing another milestone. It's been almost six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war is entering a dramatic new phase. Our Charlie Daggett reports from the southeastern region of Ukraine. Ukraine's artillery and missile barrages this week continue to exact a heavy toll on Russian forces. Yet nearly six months into the invasion, the offensive grinds on. Ukrainian territory, towns, cities we visited in eastern Donbass region back in April is now firmly under Russian occupation. But this week, the war entered a dramatic new phase in the south, and the series of explosions at the Russian airbase in Crimea is just one part of it. It comes as Ukrainian forces prepare for a major counterattack to recapture Kurzon province. In a frontline position we're not allowed to identify, combat medic Serhai Zaitsev said he's seen horrific injuries as the Russians have stepped up shelling. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is already underway, he says, yesterday, today, tomorrow, and that hit on the airfield in Crimea is a clear statement to Russians that we can get you. And the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant sits on the very edge of the front line, under Russian control since the early days of the war. It's now become a battleground, with Ukraine accusing Russian forces of using it as a shield to launch attacks. Yesterday, we visited the towns of Markinets and Nikopol, just across the river from the plant, which have come under heavy nightly bombardment. This is just one apartment destroyed in the bombardment. Residents here tell us they only have about seven seconds from the time of launch at the nuclear power plant to impact. No time for an air raid siren, no time to take shelter. Deputy Mayor of Nikopol, Natalia Horbelit, told us shells start raining down in the early hours. Do you believe that these attacks are coming from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant? At that range, the maximum is around 10 miles from us. G7 nations have called on Moscow to withdraw its forces in order to avoid a nuclear catastrophe. But nobody is giving ground here as both sides double down for the battle to come. Charlie, thank you. We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's back to school time, and districts nationwide are dealing with a serious teacher shortage. But it's hard to know exactly how many classrooms are teacher-less due to gaps in data from state to state. Alberto Carvalho is the superintendent of the second largest school district in the country, Los Angeles, and he joins us this morning. Good morning to you. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says there are 300,000 fewer public school teachers than there were before the pandemic. These were numbers current in June. Do you know why so many teachers are leaving the classroom? Well, good morning, number one. I believe we do. Uh, Number one, there are economic conditions that have made it difficult for teachers to be recruited into the classroom. Insufficient pay, uh, critical hardship. The pandemic did not help. Uh, Certainly the over two years that teachers endured uh, during virtual learning and then back to school uh, with extreme conditions faced by many uh, certainly had a chilling effect on many. And as a result of that, a disproportionate number of teachers across the country decided to retire before accruing full benefits. That's truly unprecedented in America's history. Well, a member of your staff told us that out in L.A. to mitigate the shortage, you're giving out incentives, grants, but also something called alternative certification programs where teachers can go into the classroom before they've fully completed their own credentialing and their field work. You've also hired instructors on provision and intern permits. That sounds like you're lowering standards. We're really not. I mean, these are uh, fully credentialed individuals. They have a bachelor's or a master's degree. They may not yet have the state certification, but they have the course content already done. They may be missing uh, a specific exam. But look, uh, we are for the very first time in over a decade fully staffed going into August 15th, the very first day of school. We were able to hire an excess of 1,500 teachers uh, during the summer months. We partnered with colleges and universities. We cast a wide net for recruitment. We offered incentives. And last but not least, uh, we, as you correctly said, embraced this concept of micro-credentialing to accelerate the hiring of qualified teachers for our students. Uh, The average pay, according to the National Education Association, in your district for a teacher is $87,000. Is the issue really pay? And given at the federal level that so much emergency funding has been pumped in, um, I think it's $2.5 billion just from that spring rescue package, why isn't the incentive enough to solve this problem on a national scale? Well, number one, the incentives are positive. However, you need to have a pipeline of eligible candidates uh, to fill these positions. And what we've seen is, number one, there are insufficient candidates graduating from colleges of education nationally, particularly teachers with a certification uh, with students with disabilities, elementary age students as well. Uh, So the pay is important. Working conditions are important. Health benefits uh, packages are important. I can tell you one thing, Uh, considering the cost of living in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. considering the cost of housing in Los Angeles, it is difficult to recruit individuals into our community. Nonetheless, for the very first time in over a decade, every single student in every single classroom in Los Angeles Unified will have a credential teacher on day one. That's truly stunning. About 10 to 20,000 students, you've said, are not enrolled in school or have stopped attending. Where are these kids going? Well, that's been the question that the country has been asking. We know as a result of the pandemic, many parents decided not to enroll kids, particularly youngest kids, kindergarten and pre-K kids uh, in schools. Secondly, uh, in communities like Los Angeles or Miami, where you have a significant percentage of students who are immigrants or children of immigrants, as a result of the pandemic and worsening economic conditions, Mm -hmm. they may have left the community or the country. So we have the lost children of Los Angeles. There are lost children in Miami, New York, every single large urban center. That is why this past week we scoured yeah. the community. We did box on doors and we are bringing okay. kids back into our school system. It's an important story, Superintendent. We will stay on it. Thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California. 
Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Republican Congressman Michael McCall of Texas, and Alberto Carvalho, the Los Angeles Unified School District Superintendent. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News app at 12 p.m. on Sundays, and it's available on demand on Paramount+. Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.